HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by S. Wallace Edwards & Sons, third-generation cure masters producing the country's best dry-cured and aged hams, bacon, and sausage. For more information, visit surreyfarms.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hey, and welcome to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here today with Chris and Nick. And I'm going to let you say your last name because I knew I'd butcher it. Schoenberger. Schoenberger. Yeah. The brothers. Brothers. Identical, fraternal. Well, identical, I could tell not. <laughs> but oh, we're on God. radio, so maybe. Yeah. If you, He looks like our father. Gotcha. And I look like my mother, and we'll leave it at that. Yeah. yeah. So the brothers behind first we feast a website. If you've not seen it yet, is already huge and just going to become <laughs> bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, so first of all, being brothers, how's working together? How's the how's the family affair? Pretty good, to be honest. Um, I always say if I'm going to be in the workspace and be really pissed off at someone, I'd rather it be my brother because you know we can like squash the beef yeah. in a familial way at the end of the day rather than like go home and be shaking my fist at some person I've never met before and just have to work with and <laughs> circumstances brought us together. And you can always call your parents up and bitch one another out. Yeah, yeah. It has happened, yeah. yeah. <laughs> my professional goal is to practice a healthy amount of nepotism and it's, yeah. it's happened. So. Excellent. Um, nepotism begets narcissism too, right? Hopefully not. Yeah. <laughs> So, working together, I mean, obviously, you two grew up together. What was life like in the Schoenberger household? What did you cook? What did you eat? Um, we grew up in D.C., um, and we have a British mother. So, we kind of grew up in the way that British people do a little bit, where you eat a lot of kind of bland food. <laughs> but then you grow up to really love that and appreciate things like shepherd's pie and 
sticky toffee pudding and Sunday roasts and things like that. Um, but we also have a pretty adventurous eater of a father, I would say, um, who is pretty well-traveled, especially domestically, and kind of would, like, bring back these bizarre regional things from the places he went, or when mail order kicked in, I don't know kind of how old we were when a lot of these places... My father's start- loved catalogs, the internet specifically for shopping, yeah. and just cold-calling places. We <laughs> ate um, in in this Montana, there's a small butcher shop that makes really, really good jerky. They have no website. He would call them early November every year for a delivery of 10 to 12 pounds of jerky for Christmas. Yeah. Um, and at one point, I think the, the place got too big, and he orders too much, and they wouldn't ship any more <laughs> the small orders that he wanted. But um, it was sort of that dedication to having the same thing that he'd had really good somewhere. Yeah. Wherever he happened to be. Yeah. And... Um, he was an early fan of Zingerman's. I was born in Ann Arbor, oh, uh, where we lived for two years, and then moved to D.C. Yeah. Did you move to Ann Arbor specifically for Zingerman's on, on I, your father's I, farm? My, he may have done that. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. Well, you'd, if you were named after, like, a sandwich there, then maybe... That would be an know. honor to be named <laughs> after a sandwich there. And now it's funny because he basically doesn't know how to use the internet or a phone or a television, yet he can use it to order a really obscure hot sauce from, like, Louisiana, and he'll watch things like Duck Dynasty and bizarre food shows that someone else puts on for him. <laughs> I think he's the only man in New England who always has a turducken in the freezer. Yeah. <laughs> always a turducken. That's amazing. At the ready. Yeah, because you never know when you're going to need... If more than ten yeah. people are over, birds. it's perfect. Yeah. Yeah. So this obviously uh, parlayed itself into your adventure, some food adventures yeah um, at what point did you start traveling with your father or did you not because seemingly it all came to you yeah i mean we did travel we got an opportunity to travel a lot um not just with my father when we were growing up my mother as a big traveler and you know having family in england that kind of gives you that gateway to go all over europe and go to italy and things like that um i never really think of it as you know that 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 was what made me want to do food writing. I think that came a lot later um, and came with getting into media and just seeing that food was the most exciting place to be. But it, you know, it was nice to kind of have that foundation and have eaten in a lot of places around the world and get that perspective. Yeah, well, I mean, you talk about getting into media and your your educational background is at Harvard and English yeah. literature. Um, so obviously you That wrote. didn't help me write about nachos. <laughs> no, not at all. I didn't get much schooling in nachos. Yeah. And, and Nick, how did furniture building uh, or furniture um, making I, work into this? I went to University of Wisconsin for undergrad and then went to Delaware for um, early American decorative arts with the eye that I may be a curator at the Met one day. Yeah. And uh, I had worked at the Wadsworth Athenaeum in Hartford and had an interest in, a passing interest in Connecticut River Valley furniture. So looked into that when I first arrived, found some tattoo flashbooks in the library and shifted focus. Um, at that point, the director of the museum said, this is great, one day you'll do online exhibitions. <laughs> and in 2003, I was like, fuck, online exhibitions, this is terrible. Yeah. Terrible thing to do. Um, but now I seem to be doing okay with the internet. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you say, or skirt around a word curatorial almost, you know, as, as you may have done at Harvard, that you may have been good at compiling 
because what I love about First We Feast is the lists, you know, the 10 of this, the 25 of that, uh, that they are very concise and precise lists yeah. at that. And, you know, sometimes with websites, you know, my five favorite burgers is the five burgers that someone had that week rather than more in-depth and more, you know, uh, structured than what I see on your site. Yeah, I mean, it, I think it comes from having actually worked as a curator where most of the time was spent not compiling anything but getting rude phone calls from board members. Yeah. <laughs> taking an old lady to lunch or having being sent out to her house to shift one painting from one room to another because, look, as a curator, I was better at it than she was. Yeah. Um, that being said, I think we both come to online media with a sense of storytelling that's beyond quick burst. Yeah. And that's what separates sort of our process with First We Feast a lot from other list-making devices. Yeah, the quick burst thing. I'm glad you brought that up because there is also an archivalness to what you do and hopefully what we do here too, that it's not just a fleeting, you know, best of list that won't pertain 10 years from now, that there is some kind of something yeah, I mean, that was why I think, and it was Christopher's idea to do it, but Ten Dishes that made my career as a franchise that runs more or less every Monday was something I knew wouldn't be immediately successful as a page view driver. But if you look back, even over the short weeks that First Refuse has run, it's a really compelling archive of the chefs who are hot right now, and that the types of foods and the types of dishes that influence them. So you get kind of a quick snapshot of, of why food is the way that it is right now through those. Yeah, I mean, you get the familiar tree of, you know, where most of those people came from because you've had the spectrum. Chris Cosentino, Ro Choi, Herodili, Jacques Torres. I mean, these are luminaries now, but within those dishes, they reference other luminaries. Yeah, and I, I think when we get enough of an archive up, I'm really looking forward to kind of like going back through them all because already I would say... Jean George is the most referenced. You yeah. know, just so many people have a Jean George dish on there. Um, and just to kind of like see which names keep coming up time after time, I think it's really indicative of the chefs that truly have, you know, influence. Yeah. I mean, you spent some time at Time Out yeah. New York as the associate food editor. Yep. Um, you were a little drink heavy then. I don't mean you were a lush or anything, <laughs> but uh, you, you did the annual beer issue. I did um, the beer issue, did uh, a weekly uh, where to drink column, so kind of like trolling the cities, city for the new bars, um, but also did a ton of food writing and a ton of feature writing there, and that was very list heavy. Um, but even there, like I think the time out approach to things is very you know as comprehensive as it can be in a weekly thing yeah. like if we were going to do best burgers like we would pound the pavement and like i would be you know people think it's the most glamorous job in the world but when you've had 10 burgers yeah. <laughs> on a saturday and no one wants to come out yeah. with you anymore i mean gluttony is still a deadly sin there's, there's something <laughs> about it that you know you shouldn't do all the time we've ruined yeah. many a week with our weekend adventures oh, I yeah think. yeah um but kind of Ten Dishes almost came out of that research, um, you know, as a concept that I was doing at Time Out, because you do so much research to put out a hundred-word blurb, and yeah. you talk to these chefs, and maybe you're just writing about one egg dish at North End Grill, but you get to talk to Floyd Cardo's uh, for, like, 20 minutes about how he came up with the dish, and, like, how he coddles the eggs, and how he does this and that, and then I was like, well, maybe I'll just take myself out of the equation, and, like 
how I summarized it into a hundred words, and let's just let these people talk about it directly um, to the reader. Yeah, I mean, it's almost like the dish itself, a simple egg dish, you know, is so concise and so precise that you actually have to distill it down, you know, to, to very simple ingredients on the plate, but a lot of technique and a lot of research and a lot of foundation behind that. Yeah. So in a sense, it's the way you approach writing about those things too. Yeah. It's also to pull in some of the, I think, for me, some of the favorite things that we've done at Complex, which are stories behind great songs or great albums. Yeah. Or you grow up reading Vibe Magazine, The Source, XXL, and those are the best features, yeah. right? You want those little tidbits of who, what, why, and there, and you don't always get that in food, so this yeah. was a way to combine the two sort of approaches. So w- why do you think that happened in the music industry and not so much in food? Um, is it because now they're treated in similar manners with the celebrity of chefs? Probably a little bit of that and also just having a history there. Like, not to say that food doesn't have as long of a history as music, of course it does, but food as something that the media focuses on so much doesn't as much. So now that I think the, you know, the readership and the audience for this is a little more savvy and has a sense of the history of things, it becomes more intriguing to kind of look back. Because food is, is tough in terms of looking back because... Yeah, you want to hear about the influential restaurants and like where techniques came from and stuff like that. But it's not like music where you can make a list of the best hundred hip hop beats and then you can just listen to them right there. Yeah. Like you can only read about so much old food, then you just want to eat some food that exists now. So I like how you fuse those two things by taking music and placing food into it as well with some of your sound bites. What what is that uh piece called where a chef gives you a recipe and the playlist there what oh that was called you know we're like four months old and that's already (laughs) phased out it's in the can it's gone yeah i I, want to bring it back but i thought that was fantastic that was one of the things we launched with um and it was i can't even remember the name of it but the whole idea was so many people when they're cooking at home press now. play press play that's what thank it was. you yeah <laughs> yeah you should be the first we feast publicist <laughs> um the idea was that so many t- people who are cooking at home today like you you either have your um itunes open or you're listening to pandora or something like that and what are the chefs who created this recipe what are they into and we wanted them to create a playlist that went along with it so like when you start whipping the eggs, maybe like Young Jeezy comes out and it's Doug <laughs> Motivation. And then for a longer, more involved product maybe process, maybe it's a more mellow song. Yeah, I like how Young Jeezy can possibly get you to an end meringue. Yeah, something like kind that. of you should just always listen to Young Jeezy when cooking. Yeah. <laughs> but it's cool to get uh, some of these chefs' other ideas about yeah. what would be a good playlist. Yeah, well, I mean, you've also fused another thing uh, DJ Diesel Boy, yeah. who's been on the station, uh, who is obviously a huge food fanatic. Um, you had him curate a couple things, have a nacho fight with Alex Stupek. Yeah. Why bring someone like that, aside from his you know, fascination with cuisine, onto First We Feet Feast? No, Diesel Boy, I think, is the ultimate articulation of the type of character who you know we're constantly looking for and want to feature on the site which is someone who speaks to this intersection between food and pop culture in a way that's way deeper than, like, I like food, too. And because it's driving the conversation so much, that tends to be something that a lot of people say. Like, you'll see Aziz Ansari not 
to say that he's not actually into food, like no shots fired, but <laughs> you know, he's the obvious one or like maybe an interview with Rick Ross and we kind of try our best and working at complex is a great way to find people because there's such access to musicians in a deeper way. Um, there's just such institutional history of people knowing musicians there and trying to find those people who have a true, uh, deeper love or interest of food to prove to people that it's not just faddish. Because everyone wants to hear from a celebrity. Like, we're not against yeah. that, but the cool thing is to find the celebrity who really has something to say. Yeah. Who are those celebrities that you haven't heard from yet that you're still hoping to get on? I mean, if you have any tips. Oh, yeah. I mean, like, rappers who we found, I think Bun B is awesome. He uh, kind of did a piece with us about... Um, Houston food trucks, and it was clear that he had been to two to three of them every week yeah. for, like, the past five years and knew all the guys and, like, knew about all of the dishes in a... He, he was interested in the technique and, and things like that. And we recently talked to Paul Wall, or Nick Yeah, did. we spoke to him about healthy eating and, yeah, you know, I told him I'd seen him in 2010 at South by Southwest. I didn't recognize him. He'd lost so much weight. It was, a, you know, pretty amazing and his whole thing is to be a positive role model in hip-hop through healthy yeah. living. And uh, it was All-Star Weekend, and we figured, you know, every Houston story is going to be about big stakes, right? So why not talk to Paul and figure out how to eat healthy yeah. during the All-Star Weekend? Um, I think it was it was nice to just have the right notes and the right pegs for that. Yeah. And he's just a, the fucking awesomest interview. Every time I've ever spoken to him, it's a joy. Yeah. So, I mean, talking about pop culture, and sometimes it does veer to the more gluttonous things rather than healthy living. You yeah, know? my goal yeah. is to do a, a vegan guide to eating in Philly with a rapper. Oh, rock on, yeah. I mean, what other, you know, musicians, athletes, I know like Arian Foster, the Houston Texas, is vegan during the season, if not after the season too. Mm -hmm. I mean, is it harder to find that kind of person or someone that, you know, raps about Cavassier and Moscato and nachos and I don't, I don't and think it's harder to find if that someone person. Someone raps about all the things you just said. <laughs> His name is not, not Action Bronson. Yeah. <laughs> we need to know about him. I don't think it's as hard as it is that it's still kind of uncool to talk about food in a healthy way. Our food media is predicated a lot on gluttony at the moment. Yeah. I mean, when we eat out it tends to be a little bit more gluttonous than we might like and some of the stories just because there's a lot of fun obviously yeah. in that. Um, so it's nice to say hey you know we need to do some healthy stuff but it's a lot more fun if we get Paul yeah. to tell us about stuff and we, you know we also start, we've started doing a little bit about strip club foods and <laughs> which is a slow ongoing process but that's also about gluttony because there's, you know, not very many healthy options there. Yeah. I think the kind of driving idea behind it all is that so much of celebrity news is like, look, celebrities are just like us, and they drink Starbucks too, and they look terrible sometimes. I think people are more sophisticated now, and what they really want to know is like, they see through the fakeness of celebrity and the boring aspects. What they really want to know is that, oh, this celebrity is actually interesting, just no one ever asked him or her about this thing. Excellent. Well, so I if we can find those things, then it's a good story. Yeah. Well, I mean, I do appreciate that you guys are asking those questions because, you know, I think it's, it's of the mantra of heritage too, to, you know, dig deeper and not ask what's the best or what's your favorite. Even though we do ask that, there's, yeah. you know, that much more. And that's why this is a half hour show. We're going to take a quick break, though, and come back and talk about Nacho Hunters. 
<laughs> You've been listening to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We'll be right back. Today's program has been brought to you by S. Wallace Edwards & Sons. Edwards Suriano hams are aged to perfection for no less than 400 days and hickory smoked to achieve a deep mahogany color. The Edwards name is well known for its world-class aged and cured meats. Their exclusive curing and aging recipe produces a unique flavor profile that enhances the quality characteristics of Berkshire pork. Optimum amounts of pure white fat marbling contribute to a flavor that's a delicate, perfect balance between sweet and salty. For more information, visit www.surreyfarms.com. Hey, and welcome back to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. We're talking with Chris and Nick of FirstWeFeast.com. I know I don't have to say .com, but still every once in a while like a .net or a .biz slips in, so <laughs> kind of have to clarify. Um, talking about healthy eating, strip club uh, cuisine, um, which is something maybe we'll save for later. Uh, Nacho Hunter. NachoHunter.com? NachoHunters.com. Hunters.com, henceforth the two of you hunting yeah. for nachos together. Exactly. Was kind of your first foray working together on something food specific, right? Yeah, exactly. And I think it was a good lead into this because it was so unprofessional and so... I mean, if you... <laughs> I don't even know if I should recommend people going to NachoHunters.com. I certainly wouldn't. Because <laughs> you can now find better nacho content on FirstWeFeast.com. Yeah. But basically it was... That was the thing that we just got obsessed with from the time I was maybe 10 or 12. You know, Nick's three years older than me. And since then, it's everywhere we go. Every time we see nachos from Philly to Mongolia, like we've tried them. So tell me, what's better, Philly or Mongolian nachos? You said you had very good nachos at an Irish bar in Mongolia? Uh, they weren't good. It was a There's an Irish bar Genghis everywhere, Khan isn't there? themed Irish pub, which was interesting. Did have good nachos in Cambodia though. Yeah, yeah. And what what were the iterations? What made it different in Cambodia versus Cambodia was? I mean, there's so many um, kind of Australians, New Zealanders, Europeans living around Angkor Wat because it's such a, a tourist destination. So like, even though the whole place is just full of poverty, it's one of those places that's 
has tons of restaurants and pubs and things like that. So you would find weird ways in which the local cuisine kind of like found its way into a bar that happened to serve nachos with a sort of like spicy bechamel and uh, a meat concoction that was just full of Southeast Asian spices. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so obviously bechamel made me think that you knew some culinary language, but then when you said spicy meat concoction, I wasn't 100% sure, but I'm assuming you do. (laughs) But like mostly just make up bechamel type stuff and describe things in terms of meat concoctions. (laughs) But there must be like uh, quantifiers for what you like or what you look for in a nacho. And this also probably is some kind of protocol for how you guys do your lists. I mean, what do you look for? when you look for a perfect nacho dish and what it has been the perfect nacho dish you've had i'll let nick kick off with sort of some of the criteria uh, yeah i think some of the fun of nachos is there is no perfect just because the iterations are so broad but um we certainly don't like soggy chips we're into a balanced spread of all materials so stack nachos yeah the no chip left behind yeah you know, kind of everyone <laughs> agrees with that yeah um, and, you know, as we started eating them more and more in different places around the country, you started to pick up different pieces of the puzzle. Like, the first time we had probably, you know, fried-to-order chips, I would say, was traveling in Montana at a Mexican restaurant there, yeah. um, which we found out later burned down. So, Oh, that frying very line. sad yeah. moment for us and our family. <laughs> it was yeah. incredibly sad. But um, then there are things like the Memphis Barbecue Nacho, which has no reason to be successful at all. It's probably the dregs of the pulled pork, round chips, and cheese sauce. But for whatever reason, it, that it's just an absolutely perfect bite every yeah. time. Um, like whereas I've had like carne asada, nachos at a South Bay Mexican spot that, by all accounts, should have been phenomenal and just weren't yeah. as good as cheaper things that I ate in Memphis. You know. So it's are nachos dude food. And I bring this up for a reason that complex media has a specific demographic that they look for initially. Mm -hmm. But I think you've obviously reached past that. But would you classify nachos as dude food? So Most women I know really love nachos. I I don't... I don't know anyone who doesn't like nachos. So in that... But that's... Could be said of most dude food. Yeah. You know, that's the funny thing about that term. Um, I don't think there's anything... gendered in a... Specifically way. bombastic about nachos, though. I mean, you can obviously pile it high, and there's a lot of stuff when when can, it comes to like a bar room. Can that I note sense. that was possibly the first time someone's ever said bombastic on Heritage? Well. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> no one was talking about a turducken and or shaggy. Yeah, yeah. Like I would hope no one would talk about shaggy. <laughs> but then you, I mean, there are the places like um, Professor Tom's where the nachos are fucking enormous. Yeah. Michigan football is involved, and then yeah, it is really dude food, but. Some of the better nachos in New York are at daintier spots. I thought you were going to say some of the better ladies in New York. Well, we don't go to Barcelona. We're just looking for nachos. I went to Wisconsin. I don't care about yeah. girls from Ann Arbor. Oh, I, I believe blue and gold, so you better watch out. Um, but I was born in Ann Arbor. Yeah. Though, so. so, I mean, going from nachos and chicken wings and burgers, what best of lists do you have outside of that kind of genre of cuisine? That's cuisine-specific. Um, yeah, maybe cuisine or something other than what, at least in my head, I think of as dude food. Yeah. Um, to be honest, we haven't done too many, you know, singular best of. And even when, just because I think there's so much of that out there, 
and while we do want to give people tools to find like a great restaurant in New York, so we'll do the 20 best new restaurants in New York at the end of the year. And uh, actually, tomorrow we're putting out the 25 best bars in New York right now, but yeah. not necessarily new. Because I think sometimes with the constant need to talk about new places, you just need that one list that's like, well, there's these places which are old and awesome, and these new ones that are awesome. And here they are, all in one place. Well, um, I want to touch on two things. One, you talk about how-tos and primers, and I think that's so important, and I think it's so excellent that you guys do give people both you know, uh, the abilities and lexicon to be able to understand where they're going and what they're eating. Yeah. And I really must know a few of these bars. What is on the list? Um, so the bar that I'm really excited about right now is Dead Rabbit in the Financial District. Um, I don't know if you've been I've yet. I've not, and it's, it's the bar downstairs, but the reservations upstairs for the cocktails, correct? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I don't even know if you need reservations. I went when it first opened and you didn't, but maybe you do now. But just the whole place is so well thought out. It's two Irish guys who, I guess, were running the bar at um, this place, the Merchant Hotel in Belfast, which is the place for cocktails in northern ireland i don't know how many cocktails there are in northern ireland but they were really well respected and they moved out here just because they had this idea that like and not just an idea for a bar like it had to be in the financial district drawing on the heritage of that neighborhood as an irish stronghold um and the downstairs is like this working man bar where they got six points to do a a cask mild which is a beer you're not going to see really at new york beer bars um and you know kind of casual and then upstairs is like these historical cocktails and flips and stuff that is not on any other menu yeah nick are you of the same same ilk is is that your kind of bar i stopped drinking six years ago yeah so my type of bar is one where i feel comfortable i think new york is kind of a hard drinking town and um oddly enough i like a non-alcoholic beer right because Water's tedious after yeah. hours and hours and Wait, drinking. then let me ask you this question, because aside from, like, O'Doul's, I don't know non-alcoholic beers. What are your favorite and what bars carry them? Um, this will be a list which will happen yeah. soon. Yeah, I'm not, I, think I, it's a I don't want to reveal list. that necessarily. But yeah. there are a few that make a wheat beer, which I think, you know, is conducive to a non-alcoholic beer. It's refreshing. Yeah. It's crisp. Um, whereas an O'Doul's is like a clingy, kind of disgusting thing. Yeah. It's exactly the type of beer I didn't drink when I drank a lot. Yeah. Um, but we've also been thinking about those places that have really, really good non-alcoholic cocktails. Yeah. And we just had the gingerbread soda, which was nice. Yeah. Um, but it, it's about making every consumer feel comfortable, so I what, suppose. And what? maybe not using the word mocktail. Yeah. yeah. Like, let's just call it like, Let's kick a recovering else. alcoholic in the face. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, yeah. It's the same as, like, you know, yeah. duels is, like, for the lame dad who played in nine rounds of golf. And yeah. But one thing we found... Pick his kids up. That's not really what I'm trying to drink. We found funny trying to find kind of the best non-alcoholic beers because if i see something i've never seen i'll get it for nick and seeing how different countries categorize them like the german ones are always called something like drive because like the suggestion is There's obviously action. you drink beers <laughs> yeah but, like on that night when you're driving you don't drink beer Bitburger um wants you to drive but it's also the official beer of the german national soccer team yeah they win penalty shootouts and the english have carlsberg not even an English beer, they lose them. So I think, you know, as long as it's treated as a positive thing, the non-alcoholic beer can be really, really good. And I think in this country we sort of degrade a lot of our non-alcoholic beverages that come from a fermented uh, product. 
Yeah. Well, I thought it was interesting you you talking about that session ale at Dead Rabbit. Yeah. And I think the reason there ha- haven't been those session ales in New York is because it's not only a hard drinking city, but an expensive drinking city. Right. And to order something that doesn't get you the most like ABV bang for your buck. Yeah. Sometimes feels like a waste of money yeah. as well as a waste of time. So, yeah, I think the rationale in New York is to drink heavy and hard if you're going to drink because it's not cost effective otherwise. Yeah. I mean, there will always be that impulse. Yeah. For some people, I think, you know, once you get into something and get a little nerdy about it, it often becomes less about getting drunk. You're going to get drunk eventually. And if you need to, you know, finish off your session ale session with like five shots of tequila yeah. to, to like make you sleep better and get on with your life, then go for it. But I think it's exciting that, you know, from the low ABV or no alcohol cocktails to session beers, it's just like this dialing back and stop being so aggressive in in your face about everything is starting to happen more and more, which I like. So are there game-changing bartenders? Because I know you guys also do a lot of profiles and almost like travelogues around cities with specific people. Mm -hmm. Are there those game-changing bartenders that are trying to make a bar more comfortable for all? That have, I I, I don't know a better word for mocktails yet, but that do non-alcoholic drinks better than anybody. Yeah, I think, you know, one that's getting a lot of attention is the Nomad. And, you know, the Nomad is such a crazy place. It's such a scene. You've got the 11 Madison Park guys there. Um, but the bar program is second to none. And there's all of these non-alcoholic cocktails. So I think that's kind of like that 11 Madison Park um, outlook on things. Let's make everyone have a good time. And it's great when that trickles down to the more neighborhood spot where it's like, let's not be a cloak and daggers speakeasy. Let's be kind of like your everyman bar, but put people behind the bar who can make an old-fashioned. Yeah. Those are the bars that I like where it doesn't have to be, I can only bring my beer friends there, or I can only go with cocktail people. So what are the all-encompassing restaurants that do that? What are, what are those comfort spots for the two of you to go dine at? Who are those game-changing chefs that also accommodate? Our comfort spots tend not to be game-changing restaurants at all. I yeah. think, you know, there's Taco... What's, like, a place called Taco Mex or Taco Mex on oh, 116th Street? It's a revolting place, but <laughs> well, we like food it food is not revolting. Yeah, but in theory, it's gross. It's like <laughs> yeah, we go to, like, El Cantonero on University, old Tex-Mex place, yeah. where on Mondays it's half-price everything. Oh, and they get, have a like, beautiful pseudo-backyard upstairs thing, right? They have a they really have a hot nightclub that starts at 6 p.m. Oh, really? Yeah. Upstairs. <laughs> yeah. Like, you go to the bathroom on a Monday night, and you have to go into the bar-slash-club, and it's like you've stepped into another world. Yeah, but all that thumping, that that bass, that helps digest, I think, like, right? a lot of people that we're... And, and Nachos come to play part of this. We are looking for what our version of comfort food is. And El Cantonero is that. It's the place we discovered nachos in essence. Yeah. Even though the place we discovered nachos doesn't have a nightclub that opens at six. But, um, you know, and we see, even to have an interest in nachos, we were talking about New York Mag's pick for the best nachos. It's, it's Dale Talday has an pork, pork impressive plate. But it comes back to, I think, people of our age going back to see what resonated with them. And now the, the comfort food that's being sold is our comfort food as opposed to, like, meatloaf and Salisbury steak, which I love. Yeah. But that's what I went to in Wisconsin. I, I looked for it for the comfort food, but now it's my own that we're eating. 
And yeah. I think that that's kind of an exciting thing for us. That, yeah, we tend to <clears throat> seek out like the forgotten bar snacks of America and forgotten comfort foods. We wonder where potato skins have gone. Potato <laughs> skins. I mean, that's true. Yeah, that just went off the map and. That's why I think it's important that... I wonder if right. they're like GMO, non-skimmed <laughs> potatoes. And it comes back to the that stuff that we want to know when we do the 10 dishes. And I just read... Um, what's the name of the book about the burrito? Oh, uh, Gustavo... I forget what his name is. Anyway, I read a book about the history, history of the burrito and Mexican food <laughs> in America. And you realize that there's all this ebb and flow in history and recycling and new ideas. And um, Rick Bayless comes and goes, oh, Tex-Mex, disgusting. And then everyone goes, oh, Tex-Mex, I'm not going to eat that. And then you realize, hey, fuck, there's some kind of cool stuff in Tex-Mex that we want to revisit. And that cycle and understanding what makes sense and why it makes sense and not going like, oh, that's just culinary crap. But it actually is fun, and you know, oh, part yeah. of food is sharing an idea and sharing a belief in something that your value essentially. And, and we have that in Tex-Mex, and we have that in a few other sort of lower end, I guess, places. And that's where we find our sweet spot. Yeah, I don't think I can sum it up better. <laughs> but I do want to say that you know, you, you speak of the history or revisiting history and digging deeper and being able to make these lists or make these, you know. Uh, things have some basis have some foundation mm-hmm. and i think that's what's amazing about first yeah, species it's really important to us i mean I, that I, you guys are writing a new history not not rewriting history or we're, but adding, we're adding some things to the internet that if somebody really interested in history wanted to find information yeah. they could find it the goal is like you know lists are here to stay and <laughs> they always terrified me putting them together like you know i've been doing it since i first got into media because i'm like how how is this going to be definitive and it probably never will be but that's kind of the approach we think of a list what's the topic and then try to find the experts who can actually contextualize what it is that we're talking about and you know whether we actually give them the reins on the list, like the 10 dishes, because that's so personal, or draw them into it like we did the most influential beers of all time um, and brought in all these brewers and New York bar owners and stuff who can kind of like speak from a, a vantage point that's not, um, doesn't have horse blinders up. And, it, you know, it's never going to be perfect, but I like to strive to make it so that someone can actually learn where the thing came from. Yeah. Well, speaking of lists, I'm trying to end each show with a question, and that is, what is your favorite word in food or favorite food phrase? My and favorite word in food is nacho. Nacho. Well, that, that was a... <laughs> and and my, my favorite phrase is, when can we have some? <laughs> and, and Chris, for you? Um, wow, that's a tough question. Uh, I mean, my favorite word is nachos, too. That's why we have nachohunters.com. I think that's why that's the only thing that keeps us together as brothers, ultimately. (laughs) One one of the few. And uh, I think my favorite phrase is the thing that we say when we're eating together, because this is probably the most we've kind of interacted. We don't really talk. We just kind of look at each other. Well, for all people know, you know, you're in two separate satellite locations, and we're streaming. <laughs> no, we're really close. Yeah. <laughs> but when we eat something good, we just point at it and say, mad good yo. Mad good yo. This actually comes from my college roommate, who would order every night a pizza from self and pour... Um, <laughs> 
Gumby's Pizza, which is uh, available at a lot of Big Ten schools, comes with a little ranch. But he would buy his own ranch when we would go to Costco. And he would cover the second side of the pizza box with it and just swath the pizza in it. Oh. And then you, he would just go, mad good, yo. Mad good, yo. <laughs> well, I hope that does or doesn't show up on First Week Feast. I kind of hope it does. Um, because I'll be, I'll be reading and I hope everyone else tunes on in as well. Thank you, Chris and Nick. Thanks a lot Thank for you. having us. You've been listening to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Hoping to have you back here next Tuesday at 3. Cheers. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.